morning. Nice to see all of you guys. Wow, you were way more chipper than the last service. You have had your caffeine and are alive, awake, and enthusiastic. Good to be with you, 11 o'clock. All right, cool. So today, we start a brand new series called Christ Minded. We're going to be looking at the first couple verses in Philippians chapter 2 over the next couple of weeks here. Um, and so this morning, I want to lay some track to, to help with that. And what I want to do is I want to give us a little bit of context about what was happening in the book of Philippians so that we can understand some of that. Then instead of just going straight to chapter two, there's some things Paul says in chapter one, two things that he highlights that I think are really important for us. I want to cover that. And that's all going to lead us so that we can read two verses in chapter two that are really challenging. Um, but it gives us the ability to talk about how to be a church that despite not agreeing about everything still gets to be a profound gift to this world. That's where we're headed today, okay? That's like the roadmap, the trajectory, now you know. So let me give you some context. Much of the New Testament, uh, if you've read a bunch of the New Testament, wonderful. If you haven't and you start to pick it up and you read through it, you're going to realize a lot of the New Testament outside of the Gospels is written in response to some things that are happening in churches, right? Most of the weird Bible names that you read are actually cities. And most of those are letters that are written to specific cities or specific churches that resided within those cities. And it's usually responsive, meaning there's usually some kind of issue or dynamic that was happening that, that this apostle, this leader, like a person like Paul or John or Peter or whoever needed to address, right? It's not like somebody was just like, I'm going to go write some wisdom. Let me drop some knowledge and just send it out to this church. That's not usually how that worked. What usually happened was, wow, they're dealing with this thing. What should we do about this? They need some help or some count. I'm going to write this letter. There's this piece I care about. I'm going to send that their way. There's this happening. I'm going to take care of that. And, and so you see this first Peter, if you go to read through that, these are difficult circumstances. Usually first Peter is written during a time where there's intense persecution and the, the people, the Christians had to scatter. It's called the diaspora, which is the dispersion. They scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so Peter writes to all of these, these Christians, the church that's scattered about, and he talks about how to live and how to, how to continue to engage and find hope amidst a lot of really difficult persecution, right? So that's the response to that letter. First Corinthians, written by Paul. And there's a lot of crazy stuff going on with this particular church. There's a guy in this church who is actually having an affair with his father's wife, not his biological mother. This is not a family tree that doesn't branch. This is just like a bad situation. And the whole church is kind of aware of this and it's fine, but there's hurt that's happening throughout this. And Paul's like, we got to do something. We got we to step into some of these moments. And so he actually writes a letter to the Corinthians and he's dealing with a bunch of church issues and things that are happening in there and reminding them, stay the course, don't go back to a former way of life or don't abandon the hope and, and the love of Jesus that you have. This is important. John, John writes the book of First John and he's combating a, a belief called Gnosticism at that time that, that was kind of creeping in and trying to merge itself with Christianity and John's saying, no, no, no. Let Jesus be distinct and the love of God be primary and all of this. And it's really important. See, each of these writers are writing these kind of responsive letters going, hey, let me address this moment. Let me, let me like step into this difficult, complicated situation. That's what much of the New Testament is. It, it, it seems to be written with regard to, to problems. You know, consequently, what's interesting about that? I think it's fascinating that here we stand, what, 2,000 years after, after much of this. And if I go, when you think of the church at Corinth, what do you think of? And we can be like, well, there are a lot of issues. That's the first thing that comes to mind. If I go, what's the good thing that you would think of? Like, what's the amazing thing about the church at Corinth? You guys are all going to go have to do a research project. Like, you don't have that right now. The thing that you have memorized or that we come to know is all of the distractions that happened. It's not this like unified message. It's all this other stuff 
that kind of creeps in along the way. And you see this with so many of these, these moments or these churches. And yet, there's this one letter that's written to a church that isn't reactionary. It's not about, hey, there's these issues or there's these problems or there's these things that need to get addressed. This one letter is actually written simply to say, you are a really meaningful group of people and I just want to tell you thank you and I want to tell you to stay the course. And this is the book of Philippians written by Paul to the church of Philippi. This is what it is. They had financially helped Paul in one of his missionary journeys and this became really significant for him. They had been a source of encouragement and a source of support for Paul. And he's writing this letter just to say, I just want you to know I take joy in you. I have gratitude for you. And there's something beautiful about who you are. Don't lose that. That's the book of Philippians. It's this really beautiful book. Don't let this good and beautiful thing get lost along the way. I recently sat down with a newlywed couple who are amazing, amazing two human beings. It was a privilege. And they'd been married for, I don't know, about a year. And I got to sit with them just before they got married and talk with them a little bit then too. And it was, it was wonderful. You know, each time that I sat down with the, this particular couple, including recently, I got to see something really special happen that was rare that I don't get to see all of the time. See, most couples, and this is more normative than, than it's not. Most of the time, whenever there's like a disagreement or a dispute or something where there's tension or one person's frustrated or dissatisfied or expressing a need, usually what happens in, in relationships is the other person finds themselves either getting defensive or questioning or pulling away or, or some kind of thing that happens like that. It's really hard. Like it's a very rare thing. It's something that couples usually have to work at for a very long time to learn in the midst of conflict, how do you move towards each other and value that relationship versus trying to protect being right? Do you know what I mean? And trying to, to defend or not. It's really difficult. I'm watching this young couple. And from the very beginning, they're like doing this naturally again and again. And it's beautiful to see you guys. It's one of those moments where I'm just looking and I'm like, this is like, I'm watching a, like a dinosaur, like something I didn't think existed in this capacity. You know what I mean? In this capacity, like this is beautiful and it feels like it's extinct around us. And yet I'm seeing you do this and it's, it's just precious. It's incredible. And each time I see them moving towards each other, maybe with their language, maybe not always with their body or whatever, but it, it's almost as though when I'm watching this happen, I can see them and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, these two seem to value the relationship they have with one another more than they value being right. And that just speaks of a beautiful kind of love, a beautiful kind of dynamic. I was inspired by this thing. And so I, I audibly acknowledged it to them. I looked at the young couple and I acknowledged what I saw and I said, don't lose this. Because you see what you're doing here. You may not even be aware that this is happening, but each time these moments occur, this is what I see occurring. Don't lose this. Keep loving each other this way. This is really profound. Said so this way that you move towards each other in the complexity of relationship, don't stop doing that. It's so important. And the reason why, if you've been married or if you've been in a relationship of any length of any time, you know that it's just easy to kind of get distracted with a thousand things. What, what started is, is this desire to have this beautiful relationship with each other can kind of devolve into like, yeah, but we're stressed out and we've got places to be and there's this misunderstanding and there's all these other things in life and we're just trying to pull our stuff together. And you can get distracted from that beautiful thing. It can become a little difficult. There's a part of me that's looking at them going, this is so important. It's not just important for them as a couple to have a good relationship. When you encounter relationships like that, they become a gift to the people around them. It inspired me in that particular moment. I looked at the two and I said, don't lose this. Have you ever had that moment where you see something that's good and beautiful for this world happening around you? Something occurs and you get to watch it and you're just like, that was really special. That was really important. 
Or there's a goodness in it that you find yourself just going like, the world needs more of what I just saw there. And the thought that pops into your head is, I hope we don't lose that. I hope that doesn't go away. I hope that we don't just get distracted, forget about that, lose our grip on this. The world needs this. I need this. We need this. Right? You ever look at a couple on their wedding day and you see them and they're excited and enamored with each other about this relationship and they're pledging love and commitment and all these things to each other and you're just sitting there going like, don't lose that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and it's just because you know, over time, things get complicated, stuff can be difficult and you're just like, this thing, like you're gonna, you're gonna be distracted. There's gonna come moments where you go, where, what even happened there? In that moment, can you just remember back? Can you hold on to this? Can you carry it with you? Don't lose this. You ever sit with your family, friends, kids, whoever it might be, and you experience this beautiful moment with them? I just had this this last week where I went out with my daughter and we were just hanging out talking. And, and I found myself driving back going, that was really important. That was this, this interaction that occurred between the two of us, that was really important. And it was good. Man, sometimes it feels like the chaos of noise and things around me or the stresses or different pieces can distract me from that. I found myself saying, I don't want to miss that. Like, some things are too good to lose. Do you know what I'm getting at here? Some things are too important to simply say like, yeah, it's fine, we'll just let that go. No, there's, there's a part of each of us that just says, no, I wanna hold on to something because it's a good and beautiful gift in my life and I believe this is a good and beautiful gift for the world. Don't let go of this. And I think that's what we're expressing when we find ourselves in those moments, seeing those good and beautiful things, saying, I don't wanna lose this. Because each of us know it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to lose things along the way. And in some ways, I think that's part of what Paul's doing in the book of Philippians. I think that's part of the context, part of what he's saying here as he writes to this church that's special to them. He's saying, you guys have something really special. Who you are as people, the way you're operating, the things that are happening, it's really special. Don't lose sight of it. Don't let it fade away. Calling it to attention, saying, don't let this thing get lost as you go. Philippians chapter one, beginning at verse three, he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You know what's significant? One, those are beautiful words that Paul writes to this particular church, aren't they? But you know what's significant? He writes these words. These words get penned while he's inside of a cell in prison. He's been thrown into prison for seeking to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This isn't a great moment for him. Prisons were not like these, like, I'm, nobody would look at a prison now and be like, you know, those upscale places. But imagine then, like, way worse conditions even. And so Paul's writing from this particular cell and it's in that moment that he chooses to express this. He's saying, even in this dark prison cell, even in this moment that's pretty rough for me, well, it's not a great situation to be in, I find myself being ministered to, encouraged by you all. There's something so special about you that I wanted in this particular moment for you to know how thankful I am, for you to know how grateful I am and just, just encourage you, don't lose this. Keep going, Right? He's saying, I want to see this good thing that God is doing in you and through you come to completion. I imagine Paul sitting there as these words are getting written and, and he's in his cell. I imagine there's a smile on his face as he's reflecting on something good and beautiful. And if he's anything like me, he's praying and hoping and longing that they don't get sidetracked or lose sight or get pulled into all the thousand chaotic noises and distractions and arguments that they could get 
or find themselves into because there were churches all around them that he'd written other letters to. And yet this church is so beautiful, so unique. There's something amazing happening there that's too good to be lost. I share this with you because I want you all here, Casas Church, to know and to just hear me say, but to not just hear me say it, to experience this, to know this for yourself at this particular point in time, here in this year, in this season, to know that the reason we're teaching this series called Christ-Minded is because in the same way, I believe that God is doing something really special and really unique and really important through you. And you've probably heard Glenn say some stuff about this, like where he keeps saying it or alluding to it. Maybe you've heard me say it at different points or different leaders say it. It, It's true. This isn't just like a cheerleading moment or a moment just to be like, I just want to encourage you guys just so that you can know this for the sake of knowing. No, there's, it's really important, guys. There's something amazing that is happening in this church through you all that is unique, that is different than years past. And it's not, when I say that, I know some of you might lean towards the negative where you're like, well, what weren't we doing in years past? (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. You guys have been wonderful in years past. I just, it's me calling attention to the present and saying, I don't know why and I don't know what, but for whatever reason, God's really doing something special and unique through you. And I hope you see it too. As leaders around here, we find ourselves more encouraged and inspired by you all than we have in a very long time, right? And I want you to see it. I see you all opening up your hearts to love people that other people want to ignore or push to the fringes because they make them feel uncomfortable. And I watch them walk in here and I keep getting to talk to new people who set foot in this church and they haven't been to a church in 15 years or they haven't been to a church in 20 years and they say, I never want, I just, I'm done with religion. I never want anything to do with God. And then it leads me to want to ask, not sarcastically, very sincerely, why are you here? (laughs) You, you just came to a church. Like, what are you doing here? Like, what is this? And I keep getting the same response back where they're like, I was done with religion, but I want a relationship with God. I, I want to figure this out. Like, there's something in me that's still looking and I found a place that's safe enough for me to look. And that's you all. You're creating space for people that felt like they had no space. Do you realize how powerful that is? And people are coming to say, I know and believe in Jesus. And then they're teaching other people and sharing with other people that they're loved too. And it's this really beautiful endeavor that's happening in and through you guys. I see you all drawing less lines in the sand of who's in and who's out and drawing more and more lines of love that reflect the heart of Christ for this world. And I see you expressing that in meaningful and tangible ways to people. I talked to a person recently who had just gone through a really terrible divorce and consequently they were shamed at the, the church that they were previously at and they felt like they didn't just lose church, they'd lost God along the way because there was no place for them. And you all opened up a place for them. You all expressed a kind of love and care and openness for them to come and join and be a part of this and I watched what that transformational experience was for them and I just found myself so incredibly thankful for you guys. It's powerful. Do you realize this, this is not common? So it's not like all over the place. There's unique pieces that are happening here. Check this out. This is crazy. I see a room filled with both Republicans and Democrats in the month of November and nobody's bleeding. That's a big deal. Yeah, you should, like it is. If, if that makes you laugh a little, sure, that's good. But it's crazy. And it's not crazy because you're doing it. It's crazy how rare that is right now. Do you understand this? Do you know this? 
It's special, you guys. There's something unique about this where you're saying that bigger than whatever political agenda I bring to the table, there's something larger that unites all of us. And so I share heart and space and place with people in a meaningful way. That's not very common right now. And it is beautiful and inspiring to watch. Like, this is incredible. I see a church that's living with less and less fear. You have cares, concerns. I know there's some worries, but I see less and less fear in terms of the way that you're operating because I believe you're holding a perfect love that drives out fear and stepping into things with one another. And I see you all living and serving and loving others in such a way that declares, that declares no matter what the chaos is, what the noise is around us, that we have but one song to sing, and that is of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And I see you living that out in a way that people are grabbing hold of that and it's working in your heart, in your life, in a beautiful way. These are really special things. And they're happening all the time. And I just wonder, do you see it? Are you experiencing the same thing? Because I want you to know it. I want you to know how thankful I am. It is pretty amazing, if I'm honest. And it's something that we don't always get to experience in this way. And it's certainly not the norm around us. And this isn't me trying to say, as a church, we're so much better than everybody else. I don't really care about any of that. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to highlight. Guys, I think God's doing something unique in you. I think God's doing something special through you. Keep going. I can say this for myself. I can say this for Glenn. I can say this on behalf of every leader that exists around this place. Don't stop. Keep going. Because some things are too good and too beautiful to simply let go of or lose along the way because of a thousand other voices, distractions, and things. Keep going. You're a part of something important. You're doing something important. Keep loving people in a profound way. Right? Do you see this? Some things are too good to let go of. And I think that's why for this next month, our book as a church is Philippians. I do. I think that's why we're, we're going to journey through some of this and, and look at some of this because we want to see more and more of what God can do through a church like us when we hold on to what matters most. And one of the things that I love about Philippians is that Paul gets really clear on what's central and what matters most of what you hold on to above and beyond all other things when he writes his letter to the Philippians. Let me read this. Philippians chapter 1 verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, not great things but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So bad situation. I'm waiting for Paul to drop the hammer, to call it out, to do the thing. Verse 18, he says, what then? What should be my response? And here's what he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Isn't that beautiful? I love that he writes those words. If, if that doesn't resonate in a real way with you of what he's doing there, pause for two seconds. He's writing from a prison cell. <laughs> so he's not in a great situation. If you and I were writing from a prison cell to a church, we'd probably be a little grumpy about what's going on. And furthermore, if we knew that there were people who were of trying to be envious or have rivalry or somehow tear us down in order to build themselves up in the church or competing for like the following and factions of people or any of those types of things, I just bet you might have a few choice words to say about that. But what does Paul say? What does he do? It's so beautiful. He gets to the end of this. He acknowledges both sides and he goes, but you know what matters to me? You know, above all else, what I hold on to, if Christ is preached, I got something to celebrate. What's he holding above and beyond all else? Christ. He's saying Jesus Christ is the thing that holds me, that anchors me. And he doesn't just say it there, verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now this isn't Paul saying, 
I just really want to die. That's not what he's articulating here when he says to die is gain. What he's saying is his life, he has one direction, one thing he's moving in. There's one desired outcome from his life, and that's just to move in continually towards Christ, just to be and live life with Christ. So you know what? He has that in this life. And do you know what happens when he dies? He has that in death too. So whether he lives or whether he dies, he has what he most desires. What is it? Christ. Verse 27, he looks at the church and he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? Paul says, live your life in a way that displays what it is to be centered on love and relationship with Jesus Christ. That good news in you, that good news that you came to embrace, that very gospel, live your life in a way that puts that on display. Live your life in a way that shows that that thing that happened in you is in fact real and good and true because it's in your real and good and true real life. Right? Paul is repeatedly and consistently telling this really amazing church whom he loves and respects, keep centering yourselves and your message and you're on life and relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the thing that holds it all. This is what everything's tethered to. So pause. Because at this point in this particular message, we've talked about two things. I've tried to highlight two things, and let me be clear about what they were. First, we talked about how good and beautiful things were happening in the church of Philippi, as Paul writes Philippians. And consequently, also, there's really these good and beautiful things happening through our church, and I wanted you to see that and know that, right? Second, We've talked about how it's easy to love, <clears throat> excuse me, it's easy to lose what is good and beautiful if you don't hold on to it, right? And that some things are too good and beautiful to be lost, right? It's easy to lose this clear picture of life and relationship with Jesus Christ as a living, breathing, functioning church. And some things are too important, too central to be lost. And it's not just so that we can be good Christians, that's kind of a, a hard endeavor just to venture to do that thing. It, it's because that's a gift to the world. Because, friends, where does unconditional love come from? From Jesus, who loves us unconditionally. Where is our source of, of worth and value? It's from Jesus, who declares you so valuable that he'd live and die for you and rise again, bring you to new life. Where, where is our hope found in Christ? Do you see? This is a profound gift to the world. It's unconditional and some things are too important to be lost. And so that brings us, all of this brings us to two verses in Philippians chapter 2 that can be really difficult to put into practice in a world where there are so many voices and distractions and perspectives that compete for our attention. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. This is our passage. This is what he writes. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, if any of this is real and true and good for you in a meaningful way in your own life, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. It's important that we pause and recognize those words aren't written to a person. They're written to a group of people. The church. This would have been read to an entire church. This was written to a group of people trying to figure this out and live this out. And, and they're not like, they're, they're a normal church. They're written to a church who, based off of what we read in chapter one, has some leaders who have some ego issues who are trying to compete for, for factions of people and like all that other stuff. And Paul's in prison and they're trying to lead in such a way that even throws him under the bus and diminishes him, which is kind of rough. 
So we know that there's some things inside the church that, that are hard, that they're struggling with. They're also written to a church that knew what it was like to live in this world and suffer. We read this in his words as well, that they knew suffering and that they knew persecution and that there was struggle for them as well. And I highlight this to say, there's issues they have in the church. There's issues that face them around the church and they're trying to figure out how to hold this good and beautiful thing without losing it along the way. They're just trying to make their way forward. And Paul is a kind of spiritual father to this group of people. He looks at them and he goes, I take great joy in you. I'm thankful for you. It's all chapter one. And then he gets to chapter two and make my joy complete by being united in mind, united in love, and united in soul. Let me pause there. This is, Glenn will talk more about this next week, but in that passage, when you read the very end of it, where it says, end of one accord and of one mind, translators don't know what to do with this particular thing. The reason why is that's the only time in the entire Greek translation of the Bible where we read the, the author, any author, talking about sharing as a group of people one collective soul. And the word that's used there is, is actually one soul, unified in soul. And so translators look at that and they're like, ah, one accord. And that's how they translate it. But that's the word, guys. That's what, what's used there. Every church has like a soul to it, just like, like you do. There's a uniqueness and an expression that makes that church who it is and a relationship that God has with it. And he's saying, be unified even in that soul there. Isn't that powerful? It's special. It's the only time it's ever used and Paul chooses to use it here. So he says what? Make my joy complete, being unified, united in mind, united in love, and united in soul. Now let's take a moment of honesty and let's ask, how are they going to do that? Think about it. And in order to take you out of like a, you know, intellectual understanding, do you know how to do this? <laughs> like think about it for two seconds. Like for me, if I think about this, I don't know that I know how to do this well. I read those words and I'm like, okay, we all should just, we should just do that now. What do we do? I mean, think about it in a smaller instance, just to illustrate the complexity here. And this is a really good time to do this because Thanksgiving is this particular week. Here's what's going to happen to each of us for the most part this week. You're going to find yourself sitting at a table with some people, maybe they're friends, maybe they're family, maybe they're both. And you're going to share a meal with people as part of what is traditionally Thanksgiving, right? And so these are people that you care enough about to invite to, to actually share time and, mo and money and meal and all the things together, right? That whole experience together, you like them enough already to either invite them over to go attend at this place. So they're with you. These are your people somehow in some way, shape or form, even if you're new to the party. And now I just want you to imagine that you go, I'm going to take Paul's words seriously. And you go and you walk in and you sit with them and you go, guys, I want to read you this passage. You read them these words and you go, so I just want us to practice this today at our Thanksgiving table. We need to be united in mind, in love and in soul. Yeah. Here's the deal. You know that you're like, we can do that as long as we don't talk about a lot of things. You know this is true. You're like, everything's going to be great as long as this person doesn't bring up this and then this person doesn't talk about this past moment from history. And as long as this doesn't occur too, and, it's, and as long as everybody like compliments everything and nobody's critical, and as long as this happens, and if they complain about the turkey one more, you know what I'm saying? We're all good with all of that as long as nobody acknowledges anything. It's hard. How do you do this unified in mind, unified in heart, unified in soul? Because I'm guessing that even at your own Thanksgiving table with your people, there are some things that you have pretty big disagreements about should you talk about them. 
that there's some perspectives that are different at the table that aren't the way that you see things, that create some complexity there, that are some experiences that are very different than what you know and what you have had in ways that make that complicated at times. And if your answer is, well, then we should just let the Bible do the talking and whatever the Bible says, that's what we should follow and that's what's going to unify us. I'm going to bet you that at that particular table, there is a disagreement over how to interpret and apply certain passages of scripture as well. It's important, but it's, it's complicated. You feel this? This is a tall order from Paul. This is not just a small family of people who already like each other. This is a group of people who have been gathered in because they have a shared experience in Christ and now they're called the church. And he's looking at them and he says, be united in mind, united in love, united in soul. So the question I want to ask you guys that I'm wrestling with is how do you stay unified when you don't agree on everything? How do you do that? Do you know how to do that? You should write a book. How do you do that? Because that's a really tough thing. When I was applying for grad school to study counseling, the first course that I got to be in was this weird course that wasn't for any credit. It was a pass or fail course, and it was just a gauntlet. So anyone who is trying to you know, apply to get into this program, they put you through this class with four professors standing around with clipboards, putting you through different exercises and stuff. And at the end of the, the four weeks or five weeks, however long this thing was, they, are, they determine you get to continue forward or you are not welcome to continue on in this program. So there was a lot riding on this particular class. And I wanted to know what it was they kept writing in that clipboard and they never told me, right? I go to the class. There's 26 of us that are all in this particular thing, four professors who have clipboards and they give us this, this group work moment in the room at that point in time, break into groups of four. So decently large groups. And we all go and we circle up and they say, here's your task. I'm going to give you a sheet of paper with 15 counseling characteristics, right? These are generalized characteristics. And I want you to order them in order of most important to least important of what makes a good counselor of what that will be. You have 10 minutes to do this as an entire group. This isn't an individual assignment. It's a group assignment. Go. The moment they say go and the timer goes off, the room goes crazy. People all start like lunging at each other. And I mean that, like you can just immediately hear people go like, okay, so the thing that I think is, and everybody's talking at the same time. And then they all start arguing and I'm sitting there being like, ah, what do I do here? And I didn't have a ton of experience in this particular field. So I'm just trying to figure out even where to jump in. In my group at that particular time, one guy stops a woman from talking and says, actually, I'm going to stop you right there. I think you're wrong. Trust me, I've been in the field for a very long time. The number one thing is this, upon which the woman who just got silenced in the room. She goes, I'm actually a behavioral health supervisor and I might know what a bit of what I'm talking about. And I think it's this. And then everyone else jumps in and keeps arguing. I think it's just my group. So I sit back for two seconds and I look around. This is the whole room. Meanwhile, professors are standing there just writing in a clipboard, causing crazy anxiety and stress for the entire room behind all of us. And each person is competing and contending and arguing to be right so that they can continue on in this program because stuff is at stake. And it was chaos. It was like an arbitrary exercise to explode a room of people. Like it, it was just crazy. And five minutes passed and we hadn't even picked the first thing. And we still had 15 to go with five remaining minutes. It was chaos. It felt futile. I share this with you because if I'm honest, that image of my class in that particular moment was the same image that came to mind when I read Paul's words like this for the first time. To be unified in mind, to be unified in heart, to be unified 
in soul, it just feels like a hopeless endeavor. Because how are we all supposed to agree on everything? You know what it kind of feels like is like we're all just going to start shouting and yelling at each other trying to be the person who's right. I mean, think about it. Could we do that? Imagine right now. This is a good group of people. We're all in a church. We're all a part of this church right now. Okay. So let's imagine I said, everybody circle up. Let's get your chairs. Let's all make a big circle. We're all going to face each other. And here's the goal. We're just going to make sure that we all agree on most of the things. We're going to make a big, giant, exhaustive list in the middle of the room that we all universally agree on. And when we have agreement on that, you can leave because we will be unified as a church. Can you imagine how chaotic that would be? Some of you are like cringing just thinking about it, of what that would look like. If you're not, and if you're like, I think we could do it, Hold for two seconds. Think of this. Let's, if we had to write all this down, what if we just started with theological beliefs, all the different ways that maybe you view man, God, like salvation, spirituality, all the different theological beliefs that you might hold that's there. And we're just going to write all those down and we're going to form a common agreement on all of it. Then let's look at form and practice, right? Because we're a church. So maybe even music style, the kind of worship we should sing or shouldn't sing, the kind of sermons that we should preach or shouldn't preach, methodology, evangelism, practice, the different things that we would do. After that, let's move to how we practically approach issues of conflict, how we engage that, what behaviors are good and right, what we should and shouldn't do, what's sin, what's not sin, where do we draw a line, where do we not draw a line. Then let's move on to kids. How do we disciple kids up through the generations? What's the most important thing for a small kid to know? What's the most, most important thing for kids to know? And how do we teach them? And what's the order of which we stack all of that stuff up. Then let's look at what matters most in serving the community and the, and the society around us. What does God uniquely want us to do? And what's the first thing that we should do to go do that? What's most important? After that, let's move on to social and societal issues, where we stand politically and how this might impact all of us because we're Christians and we're a church and how does this whole thing work? And lastly, because this is very important, let's make sure we all agree on exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And we write it on a list and let's all just sit here until we can work it out and agree on that list. By the time we finish that, guys, most of you would be gone. And most of you would have left just because of exasperation. You'd be so worn out by that whole process. It took the church 400 years just to be able to say, you know what I think the Trinity is? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons. Three gods, one person. Right? All one God. Just three distinct persons. It took 400 years to say that phrase that I just said right there. So how do you do this? How do you be united in mind, united in heart, and united in soul when you can't agree on everything? You know what's good news is that in studying this passage, I've come to realize that the good news for me, the good news for you, is that that's not what Paul is getting at here. It's not. Paul isn't telling us to agree on everything. He's telling us to hold on to the one thing big enough to unite us all. And this becomes very significant. Say it again. He isn't telling us to agree on everything. He's telling us to hold on to the one thing big enough to unite us all. That's the singular point I have for this message today. Think back to chapter one. Paul models this out. People are teaching in the church and they're belittling him or tearing him down or they're acting out of jealousy or envy or different moments. And instead of calling that out, what does he say? He goes, but the thing that I'm holding, if Christ is preached, if Christ is being made known, if that's what's being clear, then I have something to celebrate, didn't he? Then think about when Paul begins chapter two in the passage that we had just read a moment ago. How's he beginning? He says, he looks at a church, much like I'm looking at you right now, and he asks them to call something to mind. And I want you to do that very same thing right now. He looks at them and he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, which essentially is him saying, if you know what it is, 
to have Christ with you, if you know what it is to have that comfort with you, if you know what it is to have that presence, if you know what it is to know that the God of the universe so cares about you that Jesus is fully with you right now, and you've experienced that, can you just call that back into your head and into your heart? Can you hold on to that for a moment? Will you do that here today? And then what else does he say? He says, if there's any comfort from the love of Christ. And when it says love, he's not talking about niceties. He's not talking about generalized kindness. He uses the word agape, unconditional love. Love that has no boundaries. Love that doesn't get taken away or pulled back. Unconditional love. If you, friends, know what it is to be unconditionally loved by Jesus. If you know and you've had that experience in your own life and in your heart that allows you to resoundingly say, I don't know why and I don't know how, but I am so fully loved by Jesus Christ and it's transformed me and bid me redirect my life or it's made me new and you know what that is and you've had that real experience, not just information in your head, but that real experience. Can you hold that? Can you call that to mind, to your heart and just hold on to that right now? Because it's important. And he says, if there's any fellowship through the Spirit of God, if God has brought people into your life that share in that same love of Christ and they have his helper called the Holy Spirit to help lead and guide, unite us, and he's brought people in so that you would know that you're not alone and you've experienced that. And there's a witness in that and you know the goodness of Christ in others. Can you call that to attention? Can you hold on to that right now? And when you're holding all of that in your head and in your hearts, like it's just right there in your hands, you have what you need to live out what he's talking about. Paul is saying, before you figured out your doctrine, right? Before you figured out all your theological views, you experienced something good and real through Jesus Christ in your life. Something real happened. What was that? Before you figured out your political stances on this or that, before you knew which side of any equation that you stood on, you experienced the transformative love of Jesus in and through you. What was that? What happened there? It was a real experience, not just something here. What was that? Before you decided which people were in or which people were out or which stance you needed to take or which behavior was acceptable or not or which group of people you'd unite with while separating from others, before any of those moments ever occurred, you shared in a common bond with other people that the love of Christ had so ministered to you, it so reached you and transformed you, that you are now united with people in a common experience that declares Jesus is good and beautiful. Hold on to that. There's something very, very powerful. Friends, the point is this. Jesus Christ is who makes what Paul says in verse 2 possible. Not uniform agreement, Jesus Christ. Put us all in the same room and ask us to come to a unified agreement on every doctrine, every passage, every practice, every theology, methodology, and the church will simply devolve into a group of people shouting at each other trying to be right. And all we'll do is we'll just break apart into pieces and go form new denominations and places and practices where everyone else agrees with us. But what message does that communicate? What does it communicate? To me, it communicates that Jesus isn't actually large enough to unite us and that differences are bigger than the bond we share in Christ. Do you see why Paul's saying, don't lose this? It's easy to become known for all of the distractions, known for all the chaos, known for all the stances, known for all the divisions, known for all the pieces, and yet what are we supposed to be known for? Why do we call ourselves Christians? Because we have encountered and experienced the love of Christ, and it's the most profound experience that we have in this life, and I share in that with you. That is powerful, friends. And you know what the saddest part is when we let those other pieces become the primary thing? 
is amidst all the noise of our argument and of our stating and of our shouting and of us saying, this is what's it, just like in my class, we lose the ability to hear all of the other people around us. And there's still people sitting around us, standing around us in our context that are looking, going, but what is unconditional love really? And where's hope found? And they need you. It becomes a profound gift to this world to live out what Paul is calling us towards in verse two, or in chapter two. You know, I remember sitting in my group that night and I was listening to everyone argue and I was a little bit overwhelmed by the whole thing because I'm just like, I don't know what to do and I just want to make sure I can continue on in this course. And we have five minutes to orchestrate 15 things and then we have to get up and present in front of other people. Like, what are we supposed to do? And so everybody's shouting and arguing and finally I just paused. I said, can we just pause for two seconds and can I suggest an idea that might help us move forward? And my group, because they're in a panic and they're watching the professor with a clipboard, they all got quiet for two seconds and they said, yes. And I said, we're not all going to agree with each other. I can tell by the last five minutes, we're not going to suddenly convince each other and overcome all of our differences and perspectives in this tiny little moment. Can we agree on one perspective to take that can then guide the other answers here? Can we, can we agree on one larger unifier that we can just say, regardless, let's choose that and let's order the things based off of that. And the group said, yes. And we ordered them and we got all 15 things done and we finished and then we get up to go present and lo and behold, what I discover is that no other group got past three things on that list in those 10 minutes. And most everybody kind of hated each other by the end of this experiment. And the professor with the clipboard paused that moment and just said, hey, I just want to take a moment to, to recognize Ryan. Uh, I saw that you paused the group and you recentered everybody in on a common perspective. And they said, that was really smart of you. And I started laughing at her, which I know is not a good thing if you want to continue on in the program at that point in time. And I started laughing and I said, I wish being smart had something to do with it. I work at a church. I did. I said, I work at a church. Do you understand how many different people with different backgrounds and things all set foot in this place? And if we're not united around one large thing to anchor us in, it devolves into chaos. And so I think I just practiced what a church has taught me this entire time. And my professor's like, oh, well, cool. And then just left, like just moved on. Like there wasn't anything there. But I meant that. It's so incredibly important. Friends, only Christ is big enough, beautiful enough constant enough, powerful enough, unchanging enough to unify our minds, our hearts, and unite us in soul in a way that we can continue to be an expression of unconditional love and grace and passion to the world around us. That's it. It's the only thing big enough. Everything else will come to fade and pass, and yet he will remain. You know, we're going to find ourselves in moments where we disagree about theology and doctrine, we're going to find ourselves in moments where we disagree about form and practice. We're going to have different preferences and perspectives and methods and passions and all the different pieces. We're not even always going to agree on the best way to love and serve the world around us. And do you know what that makes us? A normal church filled with normal people. It's been going on from the beginning of this thing, and it's still happening. But you know the thing that makes a church special? The thing that makes this church a gift to the world around it and a voice that feels like it's needed more and more in this season of time in this world that we currently live in is when we unite with our actions, our voices, and our lives and get to live out the truth that Jesus Christ and his love and his grace is big enough to unite all of it. It's the biggest thing we have. 
And so friends, in our current climate, (laughs) that feels like a small miracle. Or if I'm honest, like a really big miracle. And God's doing that through you. So can I just say, don't stop. Don't let up. Hold on to it. Because some things are too good and too beautiful to simply let them slide away into oblivion. As the church, do the beautiful thing that you have been doing and are continuing to do. And can I say, I'm praying with for you. I am with you in this. We're encouraging you. And can I leave you with a challenge to engage this week or in the months to come? I don't care. How, however you want to do this. I want to challenge you. Go back and read through Philippians chapter 2 and read through verse 1 when Paul says, so if there's any comfort in Christ, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any of these things, and he lists them all out, and can you just spend some time with that one verse? And you don't need to understand it intellectually. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you just to sit there and just reflect on each of those moments and what Christ has been for you. What that actual experience is, call that center, hold it in your heart, hold it in your hands, hold it in your head. And as you do this, what I believe is you will be holding the best possible thing that we need to live out Paul's challenge here in Philippians 2, verse 2. And friends, I believe that God has good and beautiful things in store. He's already doing amazing things through you. Keep living out the gift of the love of Christ in this world. Let me pray. God, we love you. And we admit that... uh, Being unified is hard sometimes. There's a lot we disagree over in moments. Some of us have experiences and perspectives and things that make certain things matter more than others and all of that, Lord. But I just pray, God, that above all else, you would matter. God, I pray that above all else, the work of Christ, Lord, you in our hearts and lives, that you would just center us in on that thing. Lord, for anybody who's forgotten what that's like, for anybody who's forgotten what it is that unites them with each person in this room, I pray that you just give them the gift of calling that to mind. Give them the grace of allowing them to just remember, to experience, to hold that. Lord, if anybody doesn't have that hope, I pray, Lord, that they would place the weight of their trust and faith in you, Lord, that they might know how loved they are and good that you are for them, Lord. The good things that you have and teach us as a community to walk alongside them. Lord, unify us. We don't know how to do it. We don't always know where to start, but we're going to start with you. So lead us forward and continue to love this world in amazing ways. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you guys go, before you guys go, if you're new here, uh, two things. One, it's a pleasure to to just have you with us. I'm going to be standing right over here. We'd love to shake your hand and meet you um, and just say, hey. And then for all of you guys, one last reminder, gifts of love right? Where we're helping partner with ICS to, to make sure people have amazing Christmases. Uh, it's 50% kids and seniors that, that are, you know, we're able to sponsor here. 79 families or people have been sponsored so far. There's still 56 who remain. So stop by the gifts of love table, love people in practical ways, the way that you always have and continue to do so. Uh, keep living that out, friends. We'll see you soon. It's good to be with you.